as, as I've said it before and as I think you know it, um, the groundwork for a solid faith is to know your position before God reached down and saved you. It's the groundwork of a solid faith. Not only to know that, but to remember that. Honestly, we could, we would do better for ourselves to, as from a, from a sense of um, percentages, to, to speak more percentage-wise on the depravity of man than even the goodness of God. We latch on to the goodness of God, right? It's like love, grace, mercy, peace, hope, salvation, eternal life, kindness. You know, I can, I can name off more traits of the good characteristics that we love about God quickly than I can about the characteristics of us that separate us from God. Um, so it would do us good to continue on in that path. But what we're, what we're really doing here, what Paul has done, and we're just following that path, is he is setting us up for some of the most beautiful theology uh, written in all of the Bible. And in order to be set up to understand that and follow that adequately, we really need to know where we stood or where we stand before God. So today we're going to look into the text that will be sort of the culmination of all of the first parts of Paul's letter to the church, the churches at Rome. It is, it's the grand finale, so to speak, of the depravity of man and his neediness upon God. Uh, not that there would be any doubt after studying the first few chapters of Romans, but if there is doubt or there was doubt in your mind, uh, I hope that it has all been eliminated that man is sinful. Mankind is sinful. And we are in great need of a Savior. So Paul in Romans 3 is going to sort of say, if you didn't get it to this point, this is what I've been trying to say in the letter. And that's what we're going to study over the next few weeks. Romans 3 is where we'll be. I want you to go ahead and pin something in your Bible um, with your finger or a, a piece of paper or a pen or something. Uh, just not pen as in write, just tab it. Okay? I need you to turn to 1 Corinthians 1 because I'm probably going to forget to tell you to turn there later and I want you to read along with me just in case I forget. So I want you to have 1 Corinthians 1 saved, but we're going to be in Romans 3 uh, looking at verses 9 through 20 over the next few weeks. I'm going to read for us Romans 3, 9 through 12 today. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Pray with me today. Lord, would you allow us today to look at our helpless estate and to trust completely and wholly in the Savior of the world, who for us is the righteousness of God, who for us is salvation, hope, redemption, justification, eternal life. Would you help us to see ourselves as we are so that we may receive Christ as he is. We pray and ask these things in the name of Jesus, and we trust you to do it. It's in his name we pray. Amen. 
I'm going to confess something to you today as, um, and I hope that you don't hold it against me because it's not nearly as prevalent in my life as it was in the past, but at one time it, it was much more prevalent. As I've grown in the Lord, I've seen that lying is something that you should do away with and that this form of behavior that I was doing was a form of lying and so it was something that I should get a, go, go away with as I'm growing in the Lord. But I... I do know in my flesh that I can be a great um, communicator uh, in the way that I want people to hear things, right? Um, you, may not, you may not like my preaching technique, but I will tell you the sinful version of my preaching style, the sinful version of my ability to gather people in and draw people into what I'm saying also allows me to um, maybe at times stretch the truth. Or maybe at times communicate things in a way that people will do what I want them to say. So the sinful aspect of my life, the sinful aspect of charisma is, is just that. It's the ability to, it's a knack for making bad things look good. Or making bad things not look so bad. It's a knack for getting people to the point that you want them to be at. And then being like, look, you came there all by yourself. Good job. One of the tactics I've used, and sadly still do at times, I will admit, I'm not perfect, obviously. Um, another amen to the crowd. Anybody who hasn't said amen this year so far, you can go get and get it out of the way. Um, is I would admit some fault. I would admit some fault in a situation in order to avoid the, the real fault. Do you know what I'm saying? Well, I may have done this and this. You know, and, and just sort of skirt around the major issue in life. I think a lot of times, if we don't understand biblical theology, we might be inclined to do that also. We may be willing to admit guilt in our life as it comes to sin. As a matter of fact, many of you might say, uh, I am a sinner. Many of you might say, I'm not perfect. I am a flawed individual. We may even admit specifically to some smaller crimes or some smaller imperfections. We may admit to lying or gossiping here or there or the occasional bad thought. We may admit to smaller things so that we can draw attention off of the real story. The real story of our heart. But now that we understand theology, and now that we've grown, if you do understand theology, Christian theology, biblical theology, in the way that you do, you understand that, or maybe if you don't, hopefully by the end of today you will better, um, you understand that this is not an acceptable way of dealing with our human nature. Often people will admit they aren't perfect. But unless you understand the Bible rightly, and the Holy Spirit lives within you, how many people are willing to admit that they aren't righteous? Many people will admit they aren't perfect, but unless we understand the Bible correctly, we might tend to um, avoid admitting that we aren't righteous. As a matter of fact, there's a whole line of what I think is bad theology that says man can, be cho can choose to be right before God. Often we are willing to admit that we are not perfect or even that we are lacking in some spiritual knowledge. But to be completely empty of rightness is not something we would be willing to admit. How many of us would be easily 
willing to admit that we are empty of understanding. We might be willing to admit that we don't know everything, but would we, we, would we be willing to admit that we lack understanding altogether? <clears throat> Maybe even we admit that we wander away from God some. Good Southern Baptist people call it backsliding. Backsliding without the G. And a real, like, strongly pronounced I. Sliding. So, we might be willing to admit that we've backsliding a little bit, or we're backslidden in past tense, but how many of us are willing to admit that we are deserters? That we are deserters. That we have all together run away. And yet, Paul tells the Roman Christians just that. That without new life in Christ, that we are depraved, without understanding, deserters of God. So he asks them to answer this question, which I would like you to ask yourself today. And this is the audience, by the way, for Paul. Paul is talking to Roman, mostly Jewish Christians. This is the audience. And Paul asks them this question, and I want you to ask this question of yourself. And when you're examining this, ask of your nature, not who you are in Christ, but of your human nature. Are we better off than any of the people that Paul has mentioned in Romans 1 through 3? Are we better off than any of those people? Do we in and of ourselves have anything in us that makes us a better person? We must ask ourselves, is there anything within us that makes us know Jesus on our own? To examine the question better, you may want to ask yourself, how do I perceive the condition of mankind without Christ? You may want to ask yourself that question. How do I conceive, uh, perceive the condition of mankind who is without Christ? Really, there's only three sort of answers that you can give to that, or three overarching answers, and the, the three are this. Either mankind is well, mankind is sick, or mankind is dead. How do I perceive the condition of mankind who is without Christ? Well, sick, or dead? The more liberal student of the Bible would say that we are well. That with some exercise and some supplements and maybe even some psychological intervention, we can be on the right path which, as we have discussed recently in sermons, leads to a more universalistic approach to salvation. If everybody is well, that means there is no need for a hell, no need for eternal the, the wrath of God to be satisfied. Jesus' death and life is cheapened. And everybody one day will just be with God and will be all happy in fluffy unicorn cloud playland. How you view the condition of man is likely the most important catalyst to understanding biblical salvific theology. There's another student of the Bible who might say we are sick. Maybe this is where you stand today. We are sick. This is a more pessimistic approach. Not the most pessimistic approach, but a more pessimistic approach. But this person might say there is hope for mankind within themselves to be healed but it doesn't look good. 
They might look at the world and the condition and say, the world is going to hell in a handbasket. It's way worse than it ever has been. These type of people, they all might know that we're all, and I guess we're all guilty of this on some level. The older you get, the more you see it. The younger you are, probably you don't see this right now. But they may be the type of person that thinks, that that generation back there, that was the best generation. All these generations that are coming up, they're all, oh, they're horrible. Millennials, you know, that kind of thing. We all are guilty of that. I know I am guilty of that at some point. This person might sort of live on that and understand they think that the World War II generation, that's the greatest generation, maybe so, they will never, another generation will never match that. That's the person who thinks that the world is sick. They might have a tendency to lean into policies and politics and scare tactics and generalize large swaths of people. There's another student of the Bible who would look at the condition of man and say, man is dead. That man is dead. That all of mankind is an extension of Adam. And that when Adam died in the Garden of Eden, he died a spiritual death and not a physical death. Genesis 2.17, But the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat of. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. The death was not physical, but it was spiritual with physical implications. And Adam, being the representative of all of mankind, placed man into a state of what? Sin and misery. And Ephesians 2, 2 says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sin, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. So there are three ways to view the condition of mankind without Christ. It's well, sick, or dead. And how you view the condition of man, and as Paul has laid it out, How you view the condition of man really sets up how you view the salvation and redemption through Christ. I want to give you a little spoiler alert. If you don't see the state of mankind as Paul sees it, and as we will discuss today, you won't enjoy Romans nearly as much. Because understanding that the third option, that man is dead... It was, is the only option that will help you to enjoy the richest and the deep theological stuff that we will talk about, that we will be just swimming in over the next year or so. So what I'd like to do to you today, for you today over the next few weeks is to sort of summarize the last few chapters as Paul has done through Romans 3, 9 through 20. I want to help us to get a proper understanding of theological teachings, not for the sake of theology, but for the sake of understanding God's salvation in the best possible way. I want us to understand our state, our condition, so that as we study this theology, our understanding of our condition is congruent with what we understand about the salvation that comes from God. Here's the deal. If you think that man is generally well, that they're okay, that one day God is just going to gather everybody up and we're all going to live in heaven together. If you think that's the condition of man, Romans will not make sense to you. If you think that man is just sick and is needy, but there's hope within himself to sort of rescue himself, to choose God, to figure it out, 
human spirit, human will, pick himself up by his bootstraps, if that's the view you have of God, Romans will probably not make sense. It might make sense, but it won't be. You'll have trouble sort of reconciling things, and it won't be as fruitful for you as it could be. The only way that I know that Romans makes sense, and really the gospel of Jesus Christ makes sense, is if we understand that man is dead in his trespasses and sins, far off, stranger, unlike God, unwilling to seek God, not righteous, not understanding, non-seeking. So we'll do, what we'll do is we'll look at these charges that Paul brings against these Roman Christians so that we can know for sure that <clears throat> um, even if the Roman, even if Paul thought that he covered every single person in the world in his first few chapters, he really is going to cover everyone. He's going to cover the world and then Paul's audience that maybe would have been the last people that have thought that he was, they were talking about him. So that's where we're going to be today and for the next few weeks. We're going to look at the charges brought against mankind. The first charge brought against mankind is this. No one is righteous. None is righteous. None is righteous. No, not one. Paul asked the question, are you better off than they are? And I imagine as we might have done in our heart, if someone asked us that question, are you better off this, than this homeless man? Are you better off than this sinner, than that sinner? In our heart we might say, yeah, maybe, maybe, maybe we are. And then we'll sort of do a running list of things that we do and they do or things that we don't do and things that they don't do. And we'll say, well, they do this and they do that and we don't do this or that. And Paul says, none is righteous. And as the person is thinking, well, maybe there's a little bit in me, he says, no, I'm talking to you, not one. There are a few things that we can see that would be helpful that Paul is saying. Paul is saying that from the perspective of God that there is not one righteous person to ever walk the, walk the earth save only Jesus Christ. We find out in Romans and in other texts that we aren't even on the same righteous playing field that God is playing on. God is playing 3D chess and we're playing checkers. God is, um, that God is working in gold God is working in the finest jewels and the finest treasures, and we're trying to pay with monopoly money. During the Civil War, the war uh, from the Southern perspective was financed through Confederate dollars. It was a currency con uh, printed by the Confederate States of America that had no objective backing. There was no gold, no silver, no precious metals, no jewels, no diamonds, nothing to back this money. It was just printed with the promise that once the South won the war that the debt would be repaid within six months of the war ending. At the end of the war, the only currency that had value was the Federalist greenback, and the Confederate currency was being sold at six cents on the dollar. To put it another way, have you ever played the Monopoly game at McDonald's? You know, you pull something off. You, oh, I want a free fries. I don't know if you've noticed this, and they used to do this. I haven't been to McDonald's while they were doing the Monopoly thing in 10 years or so. But the last time I played, they had these little uh, small fine print at the bottom. And you like, you want a free fry. And it's like, this has a value of one one thousandth of a penny. So I always would think, like, how many of these little tabs could I get together 
to make a dollar. I, my math would have been, if I knew math, it would have been really easy. I mean, it's pretty objective measure there. But um, so it's one one-thousandth of a penny of value. You can get free fries or you can get one one-thousandth of a penny. You can cash in your love, friends. You can cash in your charity. You can cash in your good works, your righteousness, your friendships. But from God's perspective, it's worth one one-thousandth of a penny. And you can cash all of that in and see how far that gets you. But you are really going to need, we are really going to need infinitely more than that to please God. You will not be redeemed, friends, by your own works. Primarily because our works don't have the same value as God's. What Paul is really saying is, there is he's not just saying there is none who does good or none who is right. He's saying there is none who is as right as God. There is none who is as right as Jesus. No one like God. No one like Jesus. If we are good, we are good like the world. We are not good like God. The reason is obviously because of our messed up sin nature. That we cannot be good like God. Augustine spoke of the fourfold state of mankind. The fourfold state of mankind. I'm going to say some Latin. I didn't know this Latin uh, because I know Latin. I know this Latin because I know the fourfold state of mankind. So I can spell this for you later if you're interested in these type things. Augustine said, before the fall of mankind, we were passe non pecare, able not to sin. After the fall, which is where Paul is mentioning right now, mankind is non posse, P-O-S-S-E, non pecare, P-E-C-A-R-R-E. Not able not to sin. That's a really good English if you're trying to figure that out. So man in this state, where if we turn the English around, he is completely unable to avoid sinning, or man in his fallen state cannot prevent sinning. That is what dead in our trespasses means. If you were wondering about the other two natures, they are after redemption. You've got before the fall. You've got after the fall. You've got after redemption. That is passe pecare and passe non pecare. Possible to sin and possible to not sin. And then glorification, non passe pecare. Not possible to sin. But man, pre-redemption, is non passe, non pecare, unable to not sin. It is important then to understand that the reason no one seeks God is not then about a choice to reject or accept God, but it is about the nature of mankind. The nature of mankind, as Augustine would have said. Mankind in his human nature is passe, Non passe, non pecare. You might at this point look at me and say, Bryce, what about free will? I'm glad you asked that question. Man definitely has free will. And you may say, but didn't you just say that man's nature causes him to reject God and not his will? Great question, guys. Just be patient and I'll get there, I promise. That is what you need to know about free will is this. 
your mind is never neutral. Your mind is never neutral about things. Would you agree that your mind chooses what it wants and what it most desires? Would you agree that your mind chooses what it cannot live without? Therefore, your free will will always choose what your mind thinks is best for you. It chooses what is most desirable. Now, do you think that even one out of a hundred times that an unregenerate, depraved, or dead mind will choose God? Remember, your will chooses what is most desirable. Is self-sacrifice, humility, service, dying to self, etc., 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 are those the most desirable things for a selfish, dead mind? No. What is more desirable is death. What is more desirable is depravity. Because those are the things that a dead mind knows. Now, because we are created in the image of God, our minds often choose spiritual or wholesome things. But unless the mind and heart is regenerated, we are, as Augustine would have said, non passe, non pecare, not able not to sin, to not sin. We are bound to our nature, which directs our will, and the unregenerate heart never chooses God. This is the truth of what Paul is saying in all of Romans, in all of his other letters, what the gospel is saying, and what we are reading today. Paul says, no one pleases God. Then he says, no one has spiritual understanding. Verse 11, no one understands. Now this is a little tricky here because we can look at all types of unbelieving people and say, look, they understand the Bible. One of the biggest arguments of an atheist or an agnostic or someone who doesn't know Jesus is, I've read the Bible through and through and this is the conclusion that I've come to. So as a matter of fact, people do know the Bible. There are religion professors at Secular College right now who can teach the gospel better than some of us sitting in this room but do not actually understand the difference between knowing and understanding the gospel. The difference, obviously, do I know things about Christ or do I know Christ as the way, the truth, and the life? Paul discusses the idea of understanding God to the church at Corinth in 1 Corinthians 1. He said that the word or the knowledge of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. It's foolishness to those who are perishing. It is a stumbling block because they have it and know it, but they don't know what to do with it. This is a lack of understanding. Having God, knowing about God, and then not knowing what to do with the knowledge that you have. Look at first look at first Corinthians one, verse twenty. Let me turn there because I want to make sure that I got the right reference. It's in my Bible right now. (coughs) Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God 
through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and a folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks... Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Then in 1 Corinthians 2, you can turn there if you want to, he goes on to nail down the difference between knowing God and knowing, uh, knowing about God and knowing God. 1 Corinthians 2, 1. And I, when I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the the spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. The truth is, friends, is that as we are dead in our trespasses and sin, which darkens our heart, as Romans 1.21 says, and directs our free will towards sin. The truth is, is that we have a clouded understanding and an, abil- uh, and an inability to choose God apart from Christ. We are guilty We are needy. We are desperate. No one is righteous. Not one. No one has understanding. And the third point, the third accusation that Paul, the third charge that Paul brings up is no one seeks after God. No one seeks after God. Verse 12, the beginning of verse 12. All have turned aside. And then he repeats, no one is good. No one is righteous. On a real level, all religions came from this monotheistic belief in God that started before the creation of the world and really started for us with Adam and Eve. All religions came from a belief and understanding of the one true God. And I've said to you before that all hearts understand and know God because we're all created in the image of God. And that man seeks to fill that God-sized hole in his heart. But truly every person, you need to hear this, every person who is not actively following Christ is not seeking Him, but running from Him. And even though we are made in the image of Christ, if we are not seeking Christ as Savior and Lord, then we are running from Him. Paul says they have all turned aside. This means they are military deserters. They have run away. The objective being to get as far away from God as possible and never be found. Was this not the goal in the Garden of Eden? Adam and Eve knew their sin. They saw themselves as they actually were and they hid. Because they were not because they were naked, but because they were afraid of God seeing them as they saw themselves. And they didn't want to have that conversation. So they would have hidden away from God as long as possible. They would, have hidden, they would have hidden from God as long as God had allowed. But because God had bigger plans for the world and bigger plans for Adam and Eve, God found them, He called them, and then He clothed them in a blood sacrifice. No one can please God. No one can understand God. No one seeks after God. And no one can find God unless He does the same for you. Now you might be sitting here well, saying, well, what do I do with this? This seems like the most depressing story ever. And if I'm going to believe this, then I need some help understanding what to do with this, how this is helpful. 
What does this mean for me as a Christian? I have great news for you today if you ask that question. Probably the best news you will ever hear this side of heaven. No one seeks after God, but he seeks after us. The Bible says we are dead in our trespasses and sin and that no one can come to the Son unless he is drawn by the Father. But also the Bible says for us who are saved, for those who are saved, that we are called by our name. We are called out by our name and we are His. He is our God, our Lord. Do not fear. We cannot see God, but He seeks us. Can I tell you another beautiful thing that comes from this story? We do not have understanding, but He gives us understanding. I want to read to you how Paul finishes out 1 Corinthians chapter 2. You can read along with me starting in verse 6 if you want to, if you're still there. Yet among the mature we do not impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom... We do impart wisdom, excuse me, although it is not a wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away, but we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this. For if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, no ear have heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love Him. Listen to this. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except for the spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, friends, but the spirit who is from God. For this reason, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in the words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person, this is the person that Paul is mentioning in Romans 3, does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is judged... Excuse me, the spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. We may not understand on our own, we may lack understanding in our own depravity. But, friends, we have the mind of Christ. We have been given the Spirit of God. Understanding is attainable through the Spirit of God and in Christ Jesus. Church, the Spirit of God within believers who are sought out by God and have the understanding of God that only comes from being in Christ. He seeks us. He gives us understanding. And the last thing that we see today is He gives us His righteousness. We do not seek Him. We do not know Him. We are not righteous, but He gives us His righteousness. Friends, the beauty of the gospel is this. If you are in Christ, then you are in God because God, because Christ is God's. And you are in Christ, then you are righteous and you have the righteousness of Christ, which is the same thing as having the righteousness of God. No, you cannot do good on your own. 
non passe, non pecare. But with the redemption of Christ, you can progressively be like him. And because of Christ, you are seen as good in the eyes of God. It's no longer monopoly money. It's no longer a cheap gift that you have. Broken love. Broken goodness. No broken gifts. But the righteousness of God through Christ Jesus that lives in you. The ability to understand that because of the Holy Spirit of God within us. Friends, it's a desperate message to look at Romans and understand that we are without hope in this world, that we are not righteous, that we cannot save ourselves, that we cannot do good. But the beauty of the gospel is that at the perfect time, God sent his son to live on this earth, a perfect life, to die a death we could not die, to pay a penalty we could not pay, to rise again in order that we might have redemption, to purchase us a place in heaven. And now, friends, he sits at the right hand of the throne of God, waiting for the right time where he will return. Now, you need to know this. This might not, be, this might not fit into your traditional theological framework, but I'm going to tell you this is the truth of the Bible. If, if Christ is in you today, if he is your hope, if he is your joy, it is because he fought against you and not with you. Do you understand? It's because he fought your will. He fought your desires. He fought your longings. And he said, you are mine no matter what you choose. No matter how you choose to reject me. It wasn't like, all right, Lord, let's go. We can do this together. That's, that's not how it worked. It's not how it was. You didn't go skipping along together onto salvation. So here's the key. Here's why that's so important. The faster that you surrender as a believer to the will of God, the faster He is going to be willing to use you and wreck sin in your life. If sin is prevalent in your life, if the heartache from sin is prevalent in your life, It is no one else's fault but yours. We live in a society that likes to blame other people. We live in a society that likes to give fault to other people. But if sin and the consequences of sin is prevalent in your life, it's it's nobody's fault but yours. Just as we are saved by grace through faith in the work of God alone, by faith alone, in Christ alone, we are also being constantly redeemed every day by the same measure. Through Christ alone, in God alone, by faith alone, through grace alone. Maybe not in that order, but you get what I'm saying. I know that this sounds harsh to say or hear, but if, if your life is not exactly how you want to, if you are in sin, or if you are caught in sin, or if you are dealing with the consequences of sin, it's because we are not surrendered to Christ. And the faster we surrender to Christ, the faster we give our lives. Because we do, we do have the ability to do that if Christ is in us. Pre-Christ, we are non posse, non picare. After Christ, we can choose to sin or we can choose not to. We can surrender our lives to Christ and grow in Him. Or we can choose to continue down the path of the world. 
Would you surrender to him today? Would you reject the idea? Would you reject the idea that you have to go on living in an unrighteous manner? Would you use Paul's verses today and for the next few weeks as a challenge to say, look, I know that's who I was, but you know what? Later I also hear him say, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. I'm not bound by the unrighteous living. I'm not bound by a dead, a dead mindset. I'm not, dead, I'm not bound by a longing to run. I'm bound to Christ and Him crucified. Pray with me today. God, you are good. We love you. We trust you. We praise you. We thank you for your Son who gives us life, who gives us hope, who gives us a future. We thank you that while we were still sinners, he died for us. Rarely would a man die for a, for a worthy person. But as we were unworthy, as we were sinners, you died for us. Help us never to let that lose its luster. That we are depraved, that we are needy, that we are dead. That it would be impossible to find you unless you step down and intervene. But you did. Help that to drive us and motivate us to give our life as an offering to you, to surrender our lives to you. We love you. Today we praise you. You are worthy of all praise. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.